Hey, Reality Programmers, I am so excited to be interviewing with Sarah Matthews, and she is a professional bereavement counselor, and I want to talk about bereavement and the fear of death and dying and grief and how we're really programmed to fear these things. Welcome aboard, darling. How are you? Thank you very much. I'm very well and I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So tell me, it it shows that you are counseling supervisor and trainer and you do bereavement training. Mm -hmm. Tell us what that is and what that looks like and then why you do it. Okay, that's yeah, that's a big question. I was thinking about why I do it before I came on the podcast this afternoon, because I thought you might ask. First of all, what do I do? Um, I offer counselling for anybody who's been bereaved. Um, The bereavement might be recent, it might be historic, and that's not uncommon, Uh, particularly for youngsters, actually. If they maybe lose a parent when they're very little themselves, sometimes the grief can really kind of kick back in when they get a bit older. So bereavements might be recent or historic, They might be for all the different reasons that people die, you know, ranging from natural causes to much more traumatic kinds of death, um, death by suicide, death by violent acts, all of those kinds of things. In general, I would say that most of the clients that I work with have probably had, there will be a, a story to the death that they are dealing with. Now, I guess everybody could say there's a story to a death. But usually the clients that I see, um, there's a particularly tricky and difficult aspect to that story. And that's maybe why they need a little bit of professional support to get them through. I think one of the things I want to say to your listeners straight away is that most people deal with death and deal with bereavement on their own. They deal with it with friends, with family, with loved ones. It's fine and it's okay, and it's part of life. So it's a small minority of people, I think, who need some professional help. And that's why quite often the story is a little bit more complicated. So that's what I do. And I've been doing that for quite some time, 15 years old. Um, I tried to top up the hours. I think it's about eight or nine thousand hours of um, clinical practice that I've done. So that's a lot of people and a lot of stories. And it's a very privileged position to be in, I think. And I guess the day that I don't think that is the day I should stop. As to why, yeah, big question. I think there are different ways of answering that. When I first qualified as a counsellor, I started in kind of problem gambling and people who were struggling with addiction, um, substance abuse, alcohol abuse. And I really enjoyed that work. But what I noticed, I think, was that underneath the reasons why people get themselves into trouble with those kinds of behaviours is often something deeper. And that might be a loss. It might not necessarily be a loss, but it could be. But the idea of something deeper. And I think at that stage in my professional career as a kind of new counsellor, I was really attracted to working with something deeper, what lies beneath. And so I've always been 
partial, I guess, to a strong story, <laughs> something that really digs in to what's underneath. And certainly I can say that bereavement counselling um, does that. It's a it's the biggest thing often that can happen to any of us in our lives. And so the conversations that I have with clients all the time are extraordinary. They're not trivial. They are powerful and they are moving. And I really enjoy that. So I guess that's why. That's wonderful. Yes. Enjoy what you do. I love that you said you're in a privileged position because anybody going through the grieving process, death and dying, you know, so many people are taken advantage of in that situation. Yes. And, and, you know, you're in, you're in a weakened state. You'll say yes to anything just to get through it, make it go away. You know, you don't want to have to deal with it. But being in that privileged position and being able to guide someone, you know what, we got to face these things. Let's make some choices Mm -hmm. because the more you push something away, the more you don't make those choices. Right. Oh, God, I really agree with that. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and I loved what you said about the historic. And I wanted to ask you, because I've experienced in the work I do, I've experienced generational bereavement. Yeah. Yeah. What do you what do you mean by generational bereavement exactly? Can you say a bit more? The pain of generations being in the DNA and feeling it and being triggered with within your culture, within your family, if it's something that's happening over generations and people are reacting and they don't know why. So I'd love for you, you know, if if somebody is kind of going through this, what can we do to help them? Okay, I I think, yeah, I think, first of all, that's what a fascinating question. Um, And just to comment on that whole idea of kind of generational things being passed from one generation to the next, and you don't necessarily know what it is that's been passed to you, but my goodness, you know that something has. And that, I think, would be the way into my answer to your question, is that if we find ourselves experiencing feelings that don't seem easy to explain, don't seem quite as if they fit with what's going on out there in the rational, observable world, and there's something inside us that just says, "Uh -uh, there's something afoot here, listen to that little voice listen to that little voice because often we don't often we think that there's something wrong with us I'm being silly I'm making a fuss about nothing and we discount the little voice and that I think is one of the biggest lessons I've learned in bereavement is that so many bereaving bereaved people think that they're doing grief wrong somehow or another what they're feeling isn't how they should be feeling or how they ought to be feeling and I would really urge people first of all listen to your little voice and try and get rid of your shoulds and your oughts if you can because they're not going to help you stop shooting on yourself (laughs) yes exactly right exactly and so when I was going through my process of bereaving getting cancer and being faced with either going through chemotherapy and radiation or saying no and being okay with being dead in two years you know and I chose saying no and being okay with being dead in two years but in the meantime I got busy 
And um, one of the things that I learned as things would come up and how sensitive I was, I would ask myself, is what I'm feeling mine? And if it wasn't, it would be gone. If it was, a story might flash before my eyes or a memory might come back in those um, kind of situations. So a grieving person, what can a grieving person do to help themselves? Well, listening to what you've just said, I guess there's two things, I think, in what you just said that might be really helpful for people who are listening. First of all, um, you got good at boundaries. So you got got good at figuring out, as you said, does this feeling belong to me or does this feeling belong to someone else? So you got really good and really smart at figuring out what was what and what belonged to who. And that, I would say, is a very useful thing to do. And the second thing I think I heard within the body of what you said about that very powerful and what must have been a very difficult experience for you is that you understood that there's also an issue of loss. And I think loss is connected to bereavement, but it is different. You can lose things um, without somebody actually dying. And I guess I think I heard that that's what you experienced. So you started to experience loss of the life that you'd had before your diagnosis, the woman that you thought yourself to be, all of those things. And I think what I heard you say is that you got busy filling up the gaps of that loss and enriching your life filling it, populating it with things, with people. I don't know what you did, but whatever it is you did, you populated, you repopulated your life to compensate for that loss. I don't know if I'm picking that up right, but if I oh, am, absolutely. those two things, yeah. Yeah, really good sure. things to do. Okay. I, I okay. allowed myself to be drawn. It's like, okay, well, I'm going this way now. And mm. then I figure out why I'm I'm receiving something that is a gift and I gathered all the gifts. And next thing you know, like this past year, I celebrated 21 years of being told I'd be dead in two years. <laughs> so- oh, wait. and when I hear you say I gathered all the gifts, I, um, okay, across the hundreds of miles between you and I right now, I, that was really moving, really moving. So that's an extraordinary thing that you did. And I think one of the things that I experience all the time in my work is that people do extraordinary things in the face of difficulty and my word it's humbling and it's inspiring yeah my kids were six and twelve okay at the time yeah so it's like hmm how are they going to be let's see in two years they're going to be eight and 14 (laughs) you know it's like hmm Yes, you could, mm. you, I could definitely feel, okay, I got this information. Now I have two ways to go or no way to go and not make any decisions. Okay. You know, yes, and, freeze, and, just freeze and not yeah. do anything. Yeah. Yeah. And no choices, no decisions, no knowledge, no healing at all. And I could totally see myself having these choices right in front of me at right. the time. And the way you describe it, it was, it was vivid. And I think that it's often the case, isn't it? When the chips are down, I agree with you. I think some people, some of us do freeze some of the time. But if we can get ourselves out of frozen, defrost ourselves, if you like, then I think we can dig deep and actually find resources which can take our breath away. Love it. So I know um, 
you know, talking to kids about death mm. and dying, but even talking to adults, because we're so programmed to, no, I don't want to talk about it. I want to talk about a will. <laughs> I don't want to talk about just in case. Nope. Cause it's not going to happen ever to me. Right. <laughs> Yes, I hear people saying, you know, well, if I die, blah, blah, blah. And I think, no, hang on a second. It's not an if, it's a when. It's going to happen to everybody. So, yeah, totally agree. Yeah. So I got the when in two years. Okay. So I got my when. What am I going to do with this when? So how, how do we talk to each other about this natural process that we go through but it reduces the taboo of it, but supports at the same time and helps prepare each other. I mean, what do we do to reprogram ourselves Mm. in allowing this in? Because, you know, my meat suit's here temporarily, right? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) What a great way to put it. Yeah. Okay. I, I, first of all, I think that there isn't a formula what should I say? What should I do? How should I be? How should I approach it? And that is not me ducking the answer. That's actually part of my answer, which is there isn't a formula. There are what there are are people. And when I'm having a conversation with someone, the same as you, you and I are kind of doing it right now. We've never spoken before, but we're feeling our way. We're getting to know each other. We're listening. We're responding. And so we are turn taking. We are kind of figuring stuff out as we go. We're trying to be sensitive to each other. We're, we're dancing. Trying to yeah, we're dancing. Thank Yes, lovely. How nice. Yes. So first of all, there isn't a set way of talking about those difficult things. There is people and there are relationships. So let go of the idea that there's some way of doing it that you don't know. And if you don't know it, then you can't do it because you're going to get it wrong. Use instead the skills that you have as a human being, which is about connecting with other people, being sensitive, saying a little bit, seeing how that goes, saying a bit more responding to what someone says so that would be the first thing I would say the other thing I would say is think about the language and the words and take your cue from the other the other person because there's a lot of stuff written I think in the in the field of bereavement about do we use the word death do we not what other words do we use what phrases should we use blah 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 and I would say again forget about all of that really think about the person in front of you listen to how they talk what kind of words they use and use that use their words because what you're trying to do if you're going to have that tough conversation is open things rather than close things and so now is not the time for challenge and confrontation and I insist you use this word or that word I'm going to be respectful of where you are and that might include all sorts of things it might include um, your values your religious system all sorts of things because death taps into some really big and really important things for how people feel their understanding of the world and who they are in it. So being respectful in your conversation is super important. And the last thing I guess I would say is that you listen to where the person is in their understanding. So not just the words that they use, which I've mentioned, not just being respectful of their belief system, which I've mentioned, but also where are they emotionally? And if you listen properly, you will learn where someone is and how much they can take. And you don't have to say everything all at once. 
a little bit goes a long, long way because conversational seeds can be sown. People can go away and think and change what's happening for them. You don't have to fix everything with your conversation. What you're doing is you're trying to support rather than shape. Yes, I love that you said a little bit goes a long way. That means mm. less words, more listening. Mm. And not just listening to what they're saying, listening to their body, noticing where they're holding it in their body, noticing yes. how they move their body. Love it. Love it. And, um, you know, and validating because a, a mirror, we are mirrors, you know, the mirror mm. loves validation. Mm. And just being silent and being with them is in holding space, I found is is right there. I don't have to say anything a lot of times. It's just mm. validation. Yes. Mm. Yes. And that and that lovely expression that you used, holding space, which I think people really sort of um, you know, the other part of my work, which I guess we haven't spoken about, I'm a clinical supervisor for other counselors. And I think when counselors are training therapists, different language in different countries but they don't understand that concept of what is it you're doing when you're holding space. And I think it can seem like you're not doing very much, but it's for me. And I think judging from what you said, I think it might be for you. It's about your intention. It's about what is informing the way that you are choosing to be in the space with this other person. And if your intention is to hold the space and make it safe and give it some edges so that they know where those edges are and you're also wanting to give somebody lots of room to be able to be who and how they are. And you're going to be respectful of that. Those intentions will inform how you are. And often, as you say, not necessarily through words, but just through a way of being. And as a therapist, you know how powerful intentions are. Absolutely. And so when I hold space, I might imagine if, if the person prays to God and loves angels, I might imagine that an angel is just holding them with mm. whatever is happening is okay. So, and then I let it go and give it to God. So that's how I hold space. I don't think about it. I don't try and interfere with it. Just hold the space. And I'm finding, we don't know how to do that. We either have to, we're thinking uh, as a as a way to respond to whatever the conversation is <laughs> yes so you know like I am as so I write down my notes so I can allow the conversation to happen and when we allow this we're really listening on those deeper levels so listening I agree mm -hmm. with you 1000% is key in mm -hmm. you know helping someone go through this process mm -hmm. is there things that we shouldn't do when being with someone yes. okay let's talk about what we shouldn't do <laughs> well and, and I tell you I've learned these from the people that I've worked with over the years so that's where the wisdom comes from um where would I start oh I've just lost a headphone hang on I think I would start with don't say that you know how someone feels because you don't know how someone feels so you really can't imagine another person's feeling. So don't ever fantasize that you somehow know. And don't say, oh, yes, I know. That would be the first thing I would say. Can you respond to me just so I can make sure I can hear you? 
That is perfect. Yes. I know yes, how you can. feel. No, you don't. You have no idea how I feel right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I think I would say is don't hijack it. Don't make it about you. So that's a very common response, isn't it? So, yeah, like you share with me. OK, you know, I had this illness. I had to make some. Oh, that happened to me. Let yes. me just dump on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So don't hijack. Don't make it about you. That would be another thing to say. Um, I mentioned earlier, I think that a lot of bereaved people feel that they're doing it wrong and how they feel is silly or somehow not correct in some way. And so you touched on it, I think, in what you said before about holding space to just affirm how somebody's feeling so that they start to feel less foolish, less odd, less out of step as if they're doing it wrong and actually they start to understand that how they feel is how they feel and that their loss and their bereavement and their grief is theirs to determine and not anybody else's to judge I guess those I think would be the first kind of three things that that really come into mind when you think about what what not to do Probably the other thing I would say just to add to that is don't cross over onto the other side of the road. Um, how many times have we heard that, I think, from people who are bereaved is they feel suddenly isolated. Everybody's there for a very short period of time right at the beginning. Can I do anything? Can I bring something round? And then people drift away. And there is, I think, a, I don't know, I mean, I wonder if it's an unconscious fear that somehow if we get close to people who are bereaved, death comes a little bit closer to us, do you know? Yeah, I see you nodding. So I, I feel like that is something that happens to people without them really realising it. So walk towards people if you can, rather than walk away from them. I love that. Walk toward people rather than away from them. Yes, because then you're walking toward yourself. Because like yes. you said, right at the beginning, it's not if, it's when, yes. right? <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting point, actually. So, so maybe to kind of think about that is if we can learn how to be more accepting of perhaps dealing with grief and loss and being around people who are grieving and are dealing with loss, I think you're right. I think it makes the business of being human easier and accepting our own mortality. And I'm not going to sit here and say to you, yeah, you know what? I've done all this work. I've done thousands of hours of counselling in bereavement. I'm not afraid of death. I think I am afraid of death in the same way probably that everybody is. But I don't think I'm as afraid of death as I would be if I hadn't done this work. And I feel like I've got tools and I've got words and I've got strategies to kind of support me when that comes for me. And that feels good. I love that, you know, being afraid of death. And, you know, I, I think about that. It's like, you know, of course I'm afraid of dying. You know, is it going to be painful? What's going to happen? I have no mm. idea. I could be hit by a bus in Chicago, which I almost was, oh you my know, God. tomorrow. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. So, you know, yes. thinking and, 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 and centering yourself within that, that is just fantastic. So darling, tell me, how do people work with you and how can they get a hold of you? Okay. Well, people work with me online. So I work, um, 
only online now. I've done years of face-to-face work, but I've moved my practice online. I think partly the pandemic has done that. I think if you'd asked me pre-pandemic, would I ever be working online? I'd have said, no way. Um, But I've got good at it. I've got used to it. And I can see that it it means that I can reach people from a, a far kind of bigger geographical spread and also I think it's actually more convenient for a lot of people as well they haven't got to travel they're not coming into my space we're establishing our space and I really like that therapeutic aspect of working online so I work online I have a website um, www.sarahmatthewscounselling.com I'm spelt strangely but well, I'm sure you'll put that in the show notes. Um, I've got an A, I've got an H and I've got one T in my Matthews because my husband's family can't spell. I'm sure it's wrong, but that's how you can reach me. Um, yeah, and I work with people from a really big spread. Um, I love the idea of being able to reach out to people across continents, across countries, across space and distance, because I think something that's emerged in our conversation today is that death unites us. Our humanity unites us. Our vulnerability around this stuff unites us. And so for me, it's all about that connectivity. Love it. And I love how our paths cross. Thank you so much. It was a joy having you. And um, if somebody is kind of going through bereavement right now, what would you suggest they do? One small thing they can do. Oh, okay. So really practically keep hydrated. Um, If you're crying, you are losing an absolute load of fluid. And if your body is dehydrated, you will get headaches, you will feel more stressed, you will feel worse than you do. And this is not a time for feeling worse. So first of all, physical needs. Try and eat, try and keep your blood sugar steady if you can, little and often, but really keep hydrated. Rest. Think about how you might treat someone if they'd been in a horrible accident. What would you do for that person? You'd be kind to them. You would be tender. You'd pay attention to what they needed. You would lower your expectations of what they could do. Do all of that, but do it for yourself. Amen. Amen. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being on this journey with me. And listeners, I want to hear from you. Let me know in the comments what you loved. And let me know what you would love more of. And in the meantime, keep being amazing.